Daniel, thank you for joining us. Um, us at Engineers, we're, we're back again. We've got the absolute pleasure of talking to Daniel Gebler, who's at Picnic, and he's the CTO of Picnic. He's going to tell you guys a little bit about what he's doing, what the team are building. And we've actually got a pretty awesome subject around robotized warehousing. So I'm going to let Daniel kick us off and talk to us a little bit about that. So Daniel, say hello and tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about today in Picnic. Thanks, Elliot. Great for having me. Um, um, my name is Daniel. I'm CTO of Picnic, and we have a very simple mission. We want to make grocery shopping, especially online grocery shopping, simple, fun, and affordable for everyone. Cool. Our mission started a couple of years back when we actually observed that all of us are pretty comfortable to buy non-food items online. So everybody buys books, electronics, fashion already online. So if you look to those kind of retail categories, then already 30, 40, 50% and more is online. While food is a pretty much an underserved category. In food, only one, two, three percent has been online. And we started to look in this market and try to see why is nobody buying food while everybody buys non-food items online. We identified a couple of reasons, and that is uh, that was the starting point of picnic. So I myself came to uh, Amsterdam to do my PhD here. Okay. I like the city, like the people, state, and that was the starting point of picnic. Good for you. All right. So uh, give us a little bit more of an understanding of maybe the backdrop and what's happened over the last couple of years. We obviously understand there's some funding there and we're going to talk a little bit about what that funding's used for. But it'd be really good to understand just a little bit more context about what's the journey been? What's the journey been over the last few years? So when we saw that uh, food is an underserved category, we asked the question, why is nobody offering a uh, convincing proposition to deliver food online? And the reason that we identified is that customers just don't want to pay for the deliveries and customers don't want to wait. Okay. And that is something which from consumer research is not too hard to find out. Yeah. But the real reason uh, or the real kind of challenge that the market had is that nobody came up with a solution or had a convincing solution to fulfill this customer needs in a kind of a viable business option. Okay. So we looked into different kind of logistical models, different uh, fulfillment models that would allow us to deliver at lowest price without delivery fees and uh, always on time and to customers. And that was the starting point of Picnic early 2015. And uh, when we identified how this could look yeah. like, we said, well, let's find out if this proposition would be interesting also for customers. So we built an MVP and in stealth mode, we launched a proposition. So stealth mode means very simple. We had an unbranded proposition. We simply said to, customer, to customers, this is what something what we want to do. This is what we offer. Would you like to buy it? And then we served only two, three, five, ten customers per day. Okay. So now just think about uh, the sizes now. Now we are delivering to tens of thousands of customers. But at this point in time, we had only a few customers that we uh, wanted to serve and we iterated every single day over the proposition, but also the technology behind the scenes yeah. to come up with a model that both serves customers in the best possible way, but on the other hand, can also be scaled from one to 10 to 100 to 1,000 and then tens of thousands of customers. Okay, we, we can, or it'd be really actually interesting to explore some of that scale and how the trajectories moved, uh, obviously over the years, but 
Talk to us a little bit about the fulfillment process. That's obviously massively important for you guys. That's the core business. And talk to us a little bit about how you use technology to leverage the best capabilities from that. Fulfillment and warehousing is, is something that uh, the industry, the food industry, but also non-food has been doing already since tens or dozens of years. And in a fulfillment environment, what happens is you have basically two streams of products. You have a stream which is called an inbound stream, which means that all the kind of uh, the trade units of products are coming in. These marines are 24, 36, 48 packs of milk, of Coke, but also other products. And then you have the kind of the outbound stream where you put together all the orders of customers where you have then a banana, where you have cheese, where you have cucumbers, where you have milk, where you have butter. All the products are coming together what the order a customer has ordered. And that will go out in a packaging which goes directly to a single type of customer. So these are kind of two types of streams where you have a lot of kind of steps in between. You have a replenishment step, you have a picking step, you have a dispatching step. And all those single steps are steps that are done traditionally in a manual yep. way. And one of the key innovations that has happened in this world over the last kind of 20 or 30 years is something which is not even about robotization, which we will talk yeah. later about, but it's something even much more modest. In the past, all those processes have been done by a paper pick operation. And paper pick means something super simple. If you are working in a warehouse and you have a couple of hundred people that are working yeah. here, you've got in the morning a sheet of paper, and then you were going all the day through the warehouse and you picked all the products that you had on the on the sheet of paper. You started on top, yeah. you went to the bottom, and on the bottom, usually uh, your day was done, and then you went home. And this operation as a first step or a first innovation step, we brought to an app-based or an application-based, web-based, mobile-based yeah. picking operation where operators see in an app what are the kind of the tasks. And then you can have real-time dashboards and you can see in real time yeah who is doing what, where do you have a shortage of people, where you have maybe more capacity and can reallocate uh, your uh, picking uh, capacity. Nice. Okay. Um, we actually spoke about, not necessarily you and I, but I've spoken about optimization uh, a couple of times and real-time dashboards, monitoring, or all of these other fancy things now that you can use to look at what's happening with your platforms. Uh, how do you look at I guess, making yourselves more optimal with some of the data that you've got in front of you? So the first step, uh, what if you move from a paper-based operation to an app-based uh, or software-based solution app, is that you get real-time insights, what is happening in your warehouse. And giving feedback to warehouse operators or warehouse uh, pickers is that you build dashboards. And dashboards means uh, you can build on different levels. So you have a dashboard for the entire warehouse where you see uh, how far did you come with your daily operation? And then you can, uh, at one point, uh, put the actual uh, graph and you can, uh, in, uh, uh, can you put in the same graph also a kind of a target line. And then you see, are you already uh, on the target or uh, do you need to speed up or maybe you have even uh, are above the target? This is one thing. But even more powerful is if you drill down to specific areas of your warehouse operation. Food usually operates in a multiple temperature zone. Okay. Think about you have ambient uh, products, which are normally uh, fruit and vegetables yeah. and other uh, products and like uh, bread and butter, uh, bread, for instance. But then you have also chilled products, so products that are more kind of uh, five to 10 degrees. 
And then you have frozen products. This is, for instance, all your uh, frozen pizzas and uh, similar yeah. products. So in different kind of different temperature zones, you want to know how much, uh, how are you progressing on picking frozen pizzas versus picking uh, chilled products uh, like fish or uh, sushi, etc. Yeah. And on the other hand, how fast are you progressing in the ambient ones? So the first iteration that you do in such an environment is that you give real-time feedback over dashboards to your order pickers and everybody else in the warehouse. And the next step that is happening is after giving feedback, you can think about how do you make this feedback cycle a little bit more fun. Okay. You don't want to give feedback numbers uh, where you say, now you're uh, that far uh, and you can either speed up or slow down, but you want to actually also reward everybody in the warehouse with learn with uh, getting batches. And we took an analogy from all the fitness apps. Gotcha. Fitness, uh, the fitness apps themselves are probably the most have are the apps that uh, put most thinking in how do we mod how do you motivate to do tasks okay. that actually are per se not the most rewarding ones. Because uh, exercising, if you, if you do it if you do it regularly, then then you love it, and uh, hopefully all of us uh, do it regularly. But if you start from a non-exercising state to start with exercising, then you need to first build up a habit. Fine. And the same kind of gamification we also build in our warehousing environment, where you can actually earn uh, badges, where you can uh, where you go through kind of different stages uh, through the cycle and gamify uh, uh, the entire warehousing operation. Okay. Um... We're obviously going to be really keen to understand a little bit more about the architecture and the design of this because there will be there'll be physical infrastructure as long as oh sorry as well as AI machine learning and other things that I'm sure go on. But it'd be really useful to understand a little bit more about the technology stack and what yeah. technologies you leverage. So in this world, and this is a pretty interesting because uh, warehouse automation itself is something that has been uh, already uh, done in uh, various stages and various maturity levels over many, many, many years. So the first warehouse automation happened actually in the 60s based on a patent from the 1950s implemented by uh, General Motors. The interesting thing here is that this is obviously very simple from today's perspective, yeah. uh, thank you. In our, <laughs> in our world, uh, what we are, what we have deployed is we um, moved directly to uh, warehouse applications, uh, based web-based and mobile-based applications. So these are kind of Android-based uh, applications that are deployed on the rugged Android devices that all our order pickers and uh, the warehouse personnel yeah. have. Uh, there, they see basically on a real time uh, which kind of tasks they. Uh, should do and uh, where do they need to go physically? So the tech stack is on the front end side, uh, Android applications, and the Android applications themselves are uh, applications that are using Ionic and, uh, and a web-based uh, kind of web-based application deployed in a container. And on the back end side, we are using an, uh, Java-based services that are deployed in Amazon. So we don't have physical service in the warehouses, but it's a completely cloud-based. And deployed over Docker and Kubernetes, and then infrastructure as service over Terraform. Nice. So this is a bit roughly our stack that we're using here. We started with document databases, so with MongoDB, which was pretty efficient to store a couple of tasks. Okay. At some point, we realized that there is much more relation in this kind of documents uh, that we initially envisioned 
So then we moved from a document-based uh, database model to a relational database okay. model. And there we uh, moved over to Postgres, where we store all our relations. And relations are in this world, for instance, that a task is linked to the product that you need to pick, uh, linked to a kind of a location, uh, linked also to an outbound uh, uh, target, an outbound goal, maybe to a truck where you need to actually dispatch it in, and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, so this is probably kind of the tech stack that we have here. And in Amazon itself, that is uh, deployed over just a couple of servers. So um, even if you're operating uh, uh, such an application for a few thousand people, you uh, don't need too many servers in the end in, uh, in a public cloud environment. Good. Okay. Um, like I said previously, before the technology stack question, uh, building a warehouse like this, okay, robotized warehouse like i said the the physical infrastructure or installation all the way through to uh, some of the robotics the ai and all the technologies that sits in between that how have you designed that how have you built that the first thing uh, what you do is if you if you uh, have a hunch or a feeling that robotic automation could be uh, reasonable for you is that you don't think about robotics. So what okay. do I mean by this? Uh, if you think about a warehouse or a fulfillment operation, yeah. you're thinking about the movement and the flow of goods through your warehouse during the kind of inbound operation and then a different kind of location in the warehouse towards an outbound operation. So the first step uh, that we did is we looked into uh, the flow of goods that we have now and how is, are those flow of goods linked to people uh, movements? And the interesting thing is that people uh, movements take time, cost money. And this is something which, if you do automation, that all those kind of time and uh, uh, money components uh, are moving away. Because uh, moving robots in the warehouse, is uh, the marginal cost is close to zero. So therefore, you have a completely different flow of goods if you optimize or if you robotize or if you automate yeah. the move of goods by robots. So the starting point was for us is if you take all the kind of the time and the, uh, the movement costs away, how would the, the optimal flow of goods look like in a warehouse? And what we realized there, and this is obviously something which the entire industry realized, yeah. is that instead of as an order picker that you move to a product that you pick like in a physical yeah. warehouse, uh, from the first aisle products and from the second and from the third aisle, that this is actually not efficient. What you need to move to is the products need to come to you as an order picker or as a robot picking arm, and you don't need to go to the products, but the product comes to you. So therefore, you uh, actually reverse the movement of the products in the warehouse in a way that becomes optimal uh, for picking and not optimal for movement of a person through the warehouse. Yeah. So this is the first starting point. After the design of the new flow of goods, you basically uh, design the uh, robotization or the level of robotization around this. And if you're talking about uh, designing a level of robotization, uh, the realization that we had there is it is not a binary decision uh, between uh, to which extent you automate a pro uh, to, if you automate something or not automate it. But the real question that you need to ask to which degree do you automate the process? So therefore, this term of RPA, uh, so robotic uh, process automation, is actually a misnomer. It's about robotic uh, 
process augmentation. Okay. And augmentation means the degree on how, to which extent and the process can be robotized or should be robotized. Fine. And what you realize there from this analysis is that both a fully manual process or fully human process is not optimal. In the same way, also a fully automated uh, process is also not optimal. Usually very expensive to realize and very much error prone. And somewhere in between, between this and this scale, the optimal degree of automation is. So therefore, you look to around between 100 and 150 different kind of sub-processes in a warehouse, and you decide for every process, what is the optimal degree of automation? And if you have defined the degree of automation, then you design the tools behind it. What are the kind of the right uh, robotic tools that you use for this? And that could be, for instance, a kind of movement actual robots that are moving uh, products from left to right, that can be convertibles, but it can be also other tools of automation uh, that uh, are looking at, that are just more, just simpler and automate or basically replace and augment human operations. So that means could be, for instance, uh, kind of enforcement of human labor with a robotized uh, kind of uh, force arm, something like that. Okay. This is basically a design process that we went through. And then we looked into also what is the underlying technology that we can uh, take yeah. there. Robotization is something that uh, existed or has been done already for uh, quite some time. So therefore, technology that exists there looks relatively old. So if you talk to automation providers, then uh, they talk about software stack that is that you would consider more kind of suitable for a company 10 or 20 years okay. ago, but it's still uh, offered there. So for instance, cloud-based solutions are pretty uncommon in this world. And what we, what we saw there is that there is a reason why you want to deploy some of the technology locally. And the reason for this is the latency between an on-premise uh, on yeah. robot and the cloud control software needs to be uh, obviously very, uh, very uh, low, the latency. So that means we made a quite an, an analysis which kind of uh, components, which kind of sensors, which kind of actors allow for which kind of uh, latencies. And we saw that the kind of the low level controls need to actually be deployed low locally because you need the latency, which is sub millisecond, gotcha. while the high level control of uh, different components in the warehouse can be deployed in a, in a warehouse, uh, in a public cloud uh, environment, because there are latencies of uh, something like uh, 20, 30, 14 milliseconds is uh, definitely good enough. So this was a kind of the infrastructure decision. And then in the next step, we designed a software system, which is a, a these days, obviously a kind of an, a microservice architecture, yeah. which is API first and API uh, based. So that means you design it from the interfaces and then the implementation architecture. And then uh, you think about the actual uh, implementation uh, um, decisions that you, that you need to make. And uh, then we drill down such, an, uh, such a project to the point where you have a kind of a pretty big project planner. You know that you need to uh, spend a couple of thousand men days in it, and then you form project teams that can uh, realize the different milestones. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you fully operational at the moment with all of this? Not yet. And this is the fun of it. Uh, so we actually uh, raised the, um, a little bit of funding uh, last year uh, to uh, uh, to start this project. It was, was last November where we uh, had an around raised 250 million to uh, bootstrap this project. We started at the beginning of this year to do the implementation. And this is a project that will run uh, 
for the entire uh, 2020 and the large part of 2021. And we are planning to go live uh, shortly after. And the interesting thing is this is such a complex system where so many components, physical components, but also digital components, software components, control components, sensor components play together that you will have a pretty long ramp up phase. Okay. And the ramp up means uh, that you have uh, beside the normal QA cycles, and this is then called FAT and SAT, yeah. so factory acceptances, site acceptances, and many, many other kind of tests. Uh, also a kind of a ramp up phase where you say, that the entire capacity of the warehouse you have just after somewhere around a year after fully operating uh, the yeah. warehouse, uh, you have just run after a year with the full capacity. Okay. Um, do you think even uh, moving away from warehousing slightly, and this isn't necessarily what we've discussed before, but even on the street deliveries, could they be robots? You know, I've heard stories of that previously where they've trialed in in areas of square miles, I think it is, um, where they've been able to send out food deliveries. Is that something potentially that could be on the horizon or or not? Yeah, definitely uh, interesting options that you can think of. So uh, there are delivery companies that look in options to use drone technology. There is uh, There are companies looking into autonomous robots. Uh, so there have been examples both in US, but also in London, yeah. Where, for instance, pizza robots uh, are moving around the uh, streets on the sideways. There are examples where you think about uh, to which extent can you use autonomous vehicles to deliver to households. Obviously, the question is uh, while we are now talking about automating a part of the last mile, okay. what do you do with the last meter uh, or the last foot of delivery? Uh, so, most of the concepts are now organized like kind of moving the pickup point close to a customer while with this kind of uh, autonomous delivery you still need as a customer go out of the house and go to the kind of the robot that is on the sideway or on the on the street itself um, we have not really uh, decided what will be the right thing as a kind of a or which kind of uh, avenue you will uh, go there internally we have engineers that are both trained and have done uh, quite a bit of experimentation and uh, tests around all those technologies. So we are ready to okay. move into this space nice. if it matches a bit. But for now, what our customers love, and that is a kind of uh, our service proposition that we have built up uh, since day one, is the uh, kind of the moment at the door where one of our delivery guys, we call them runners, delivers the groceries uh, to the customer with a smile, with a nice apron, uh, with Good. a kind of a nice, uh, let's say. And a social apron. distance two meters as well, please. That is these days, indeed, indeed uh, these days, this is a uh, contactless delivery. Uh, there's a uh, one mile meter distance Good. and uh, everything related to uh, uh, keeping everybody safe and healthy. Good. But this is, this is, this is something which, uh, which obviously would be replaced. And uh, we, we, we are careful in uh, replacing this immediately with another proposition. But this is definitely, a, from a technology angle, a very interesting avenue that we are also... Uh, yeah, I can imagine. This might sound like a bit of a strange question, but what are these robots going to look like? Are they going to look like you and I, humans? Or have you, have you designed them specifically as robots or what you see in the films? Because otherwise we're going to end up with something out of one of these films, like the Skynet or something. It's going to be yeah, crazy. Yeah. 
it's, it's a funny question. So um, maybe if I look at, zoom out a little bit uh, from picnic and uh, take a broader view, yeah. then uh, we all know, and there is a uh, common understanding in the industry is that one of the other way the robots are coming. Okay. But what is happening is that these are not kind of killer robots uh, a la Will Smith and friends no. that uh, have a kind of a cinematic uh, 2035 kind of scenario. Okay which will all kill us if uh, something goes uh, wrong or Skynet life. <laughs> but we are talking about uh, robots that will do augment and extend uh, and support tasks that we do as humans. Okay. And there are in the entire robot uh, robotic automation world, there are kind of two avenues uh, that have been taken. On the one end, there is this avenue where you have uh, robots like, uh, for instance, Sophia, that are uh, designed as human need robots that look like humans, that also have all the sensors and actors like humans, and that become a more kind of uh, human support and companions for kind of daily tasks. And you see in a couple of uh, areas and societies, those kind of uh, robots who fill already an important role. For instance, you see in Japan, Japan uh, where those kind of robots are replaced to some extent uh, elderly uh, kind of, uh, they have a function in elderly yeah. care. This is one of the areas. Um, what we do in the way how we design robots, we want robots to support our workers and uh, our warehouse staff, and we don't want to replace them. And that's uh, something which on the one hand, in the way how we design the robots and the, the way how we design the processes that they do, but also the look and feel of those robots, we take this into account that that's the reason why, by intention, we make them uh, visually not looking like humans. Because we don't want that there is a kind of a misinterpretation that we want them, uh, that, that we want to replace humans. Okay. It is all about what we know is that we as human alone are not good enough in a kind of a, in, in a, in a modern environment, in a modern fulfillment of a, uh, environment. In the same way, robots alone will also not be strong enough and good enough. Yeah. And we know that both together, both robots and humans can form a kind of a new way of, uh, of workforce that will be significantly better than one of both alone. Okay. And that's, that's our vision. And that's what we also want to realize yeah. across all our kind of logistical and operational processes. Good. Okay. So that's obviously a, a specific choice, which, you know, I, I like, that's good. You touched on a point around um, some of the the sensory feel to robots, and that made me start thinking about how they would actually interact with people in that that journey. So, do you want to talk to me a little bit about, I guess, how you architect and design some of those sensors or those touch points? So. They're actually programmed to understand what it's like to interact with a human, because that to me right now is, is super interesting. Yes. So for the sensors, if you, if you want to go the avenue that an, a robot will augment and extend and strengthen a human, uh, human sensor or a human actor, yep. Then uh, what you what we do by design is we are not a human has five sensors and the actors you know so that means these are arms and feet and uh, a few more of uh, those kind of actors um, by design you are 
designing a robot or a robotic element in a way that it doesn't have all human senses. Let me give you an example. You are designing the kind of the robotic elements that they have, that they focus on, for instance, on visual sensoric or kind of an audio sensoric or on a smelling sensoric, but you don't combine all of it in a one uh, goal together. So as an example, if you're talking about a support of a good-to-person, so that means a good-to-person flow, meaning that a, from a storage location of a product, the, uh, there are some robot ele robotic elements that move the product to, from uh, the storage location to an order picker, which is still, uh, which is still a kind of a human element. Then for this kind of flow, you need actually only visual components okay. or a visual sensor to know exactly over which route you go and over which kind of elements on which kind of decisions you do along the way. And as an actor, you need to have all the kind of physical actors to move the good, uh, goods over conveyor belts or over kind of uh, different routes from a point A to point B, but you don't need more. And this is uh, the first uh, step that we do in our automation. And what we see and what we also learn during the cycle, because we design both the robotic elements yeah. and the automation elements together with everybody in the warehouse, and we made demonstrations, and we asked everybody for feedback, is that everybody likes that we are focusing on those elements that are actually cumbersome or very laborsome and very hard and sometimes even dangerous for humans, that we did automate this and that we, by design, leave out all the kind of nice stuff or all the kind of creative elements uh, still to, uh, to humans. And this is a kind of a nice combination that both creates acceptance by the warehouse personnel on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, also kind of leverages the skills from both sides in the most optimal way. Nice. I, I love that. Good. Okay. Um, obviously, you've mentioned to us a little bit about the journey over the next one to two years when... Uh, warehouse will be live what can we expect from you maybe in terms of a product or a brand over the course of this year next year and has has the virus affected you guys at all let's start maybe with the second part of the question uh, indeed the virus has affected us in uh, in a bit surprising and interesting ways so when everybody is at home when uh, there are a lot of restrictions on how people move around uh, the streets, how they move around the cities, then uh, you will you see that everything what is e-commerce related is actually getting a massive boom. Yeah. In the same way as uh, most of your listeners have probably heard about the kind of the big spikes of Amazon, of Instacart, and many of the other kind of bigger kind of retailers, we have seen the same also on our okay. side. So for us, and that in uh, March, when it became uh, very active here in Netherlands, but also in Germany, we saw demand which was not only uh, 10, 20, 30 percent higher, but it was actually 1,000, uh, 1,500 percent, so 15x higher demand for the products that we uh, were offering. So that meant that we need to quickly uh, ramp yeah. up all capacity, uh, both on, uh, let's say, the digital side. So uh, our friends from Amazon saw then a major a spike in the way how we resolved servers, but it meant also that we that we had to very carefully look into our warehouse and fulfillment capacity. Yes. On the other hand, and this is the interesting thing in in a business which is very physical, we had to look also carefully into how do we handle our entire partner and supplier yeah. uh, ecosystem because uh, most of them have been also affected one or the other way. 
And for Sam, it goes the other way around. For Sam, it became more difficult to deliver in time the right quality and the right quantity. So therefore, we saw on the one hand, more demand. On the other hand, a uh, harder time for our suppliers. So that was a kind of the starting point of, uh, of the virus. Sorry for that. That's all right. And then, and then the second, uh, and then the kind of the second, uh, in the second phase, we see now the normalization. Uh, but the normalization is a real new normal yeah. where you see customers are actually buying more kind of bigger baskets more often, more frequent, and you have more customers kind of uh, shopping for us uh, with us in a more regular way. So this is a kind of a new situation that we uh, that we are coping with, and uh, we are pretty happy to serve all those customers that uh, that are sticking with us. Looking to uh, the first part of your question, yeah. what is on our agenda? What is on the roadmap? What is coming uh, coming for our customers and our partners uh, in the coming uh, coming? Tell us what you can. <laughs> so what we uh, what we have so far uh, done, we we are running a lot of pilots with customers um, where we try new business proposition where we experiment with new ideas. One thing what we learned and realized is, is a very interesting observation. Um, at some point, we looked a bit into our distribution efficiency. And the distribution efficiency means mainly how many trips can you do uh, per hour? How many customers can you serve with the vehicle? Yeah. But then we realized, this is an interesting question, but actually, if you look to the utilization of the vehicles, we are utilizing our vehicles only 50% because we go full to a customer and we go empty back. That is not good. This is just not how you utilize, utilize your, okay. uh, your resources. Think about uh, if you, uh, for your engineering audience, if you have developers which are eight, hour, uh, eight hours in a day in, uh, in your office or wherever they are now, but actually do just uh, engineering for four hours and the other four hours, they do um, something else. So that is not this is not so cool. So we thought about what can we do in the remaining time where we have this low utilization of our weakness. Okay. And then we, saw, then we saw that there's actually uh, the complete reverse problem of what we are now solving. So the problem that we solve is we have, we make forward logistics. We bring stuff from a producer or from a manufacturer to an uh, uh, to the end customer. But there is also an industry which is organizing the flow back to, uh, to uh, manufacturers or retailers from a customer. And the, the industry itself is a bit more narrow, but it's still relatively big. And the biggest uh, part of this industry is the fashion industry. It's the what? Sorry. Let me give you an example the fashion industry, fashion clothes. Okay. So you guys in UK and uh, uh, have, for instance, a company called ASOS. Yeah. And uh, in Europe, we have also Zalando and a few other uh, fashion retailers, yeah. which uh, customers love. However, what they do is everybody orders five pairs of jeans and sends four back. <laughs> That's what everybody does because everybody needs only one new one. <laughs> so, um, so, and this is something what uh, is certainly a challenge for basically all parties involved. Okay. So, it is a challenge for uh, customers because. While the, while the delivery of the five pairs of jeans is nice for a customer, yeah. the return of the, uh, of the four jeans is much more cumbersome. And obviously, uh, yeah. uh, retailers don't, don't encourage it too much, but it's still, uh, if you, no, uh, you want to send it back, then you, you, you are able to send yeah. it back. Also, for the retailer, it is a pretty expensive uh, endeavor because you need, to, uh, uh, you need to organize the entire return yeah. flow, you need to clean the clothes and all kinds of other stuff. 
And the third one, and the third one is, it is also not super interesting as a business for the logistics parties that are currently surfing it. So what we started to do is, we organized, when we realized this, that we see all our customers at least once per week, because food is a high frequency yeah. business, that we organized this return flow. And this is uh, for, for instance, for fashion retailers. And this is one of the very interesting propositions that we have been working on. We have piloted this. We have done POCs. We have already uh, started to launch it in a couple of cities, and we will do much more of this. So this is one of the important areas. The other one is obviously automation. So an automation is on the one hand, the robotic automation yeah. that we were talking earlier about. There's many more kind of automation and streamlining and machine learning that we are applying now for other processes. Yeah. An example is if you're serving, if you're serving millions of customers, then you have so much feedback that the entire customer service processes, you need to use uh, machine learning and natural language processing to actually do pre-classification of feedback that you get from customers yeah. in order to prioritize which kind of feedback do you immediately uh, reply to and which ones can wait a little bit. And then as a third part is we are working on a lot of kind of forecasting and growth tools to support our very steep growth, we go big uh, growth. And the interesting learning here is, and that is something what is a kind of an insight that we got over the last years is while we are growing, we continue to grow with the same rates, the margin for error that a business, both on the tech and but also on the business side has, is, is an absolute margin for error. Let me give you an example. Okay. The margin for error for misplanning of people, so that means too many or yep. too little people are planned in, is roughly always the same amount. You can relatively easily capture kind of 30, 40, 50 uh, people if it's misplanned. Think about if you have 5,000 people, 50 people uh, kind of uh, misplan means you need to somehow cope for 1%. Yes. If you now grow, so therefore you can have a margin of error of 1%. But if you grow now, if you double, then uh, with 10,000 people that you have to plan, then your margin for error is still just uh, 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 50 people. With 10,000 people, the uh, 50 people is only half a percent. So that means your forecasting needs to be twice as good. Okay. So what we learned is in the same way all our forecasting, everything what we do predicting the future, forecasting the future, needs to grow and needs to become better in the same rate as we grow. And this is a very, very important area that we are now working on and where we work uh, with basically the latest uh, kind of deep learning and machine learning tools. Good for you. Uh, I love that. Uh, listen, uh, a lot of our listeners, if not all of them, are going to be seriously, seriously interested in what you guys are doing. I'm going to be following you over the next 18 months. Uh, we've got a lot of engineers listening. Do you want to tell uh, some of the engineers listening and other people, of course, um, a little bit about some of the roles that you're going to look for over the coming months and years so they can get a better idea. They can obviously reach out to you. They can reach out to your careers page. So do you want to just give us a quick insight um, before we wrap up just about what you're hiring and what typical technologies I know we touched on them at the start but just give us an overview so let me start maybe with the uh, with the uh, uh, easiest answer to this uh, so we have a website where you can find uh, both our stack and uh, the open roles yep. which is join.pikmin.app uh, we are looking for engineers basically for all kind of roles if you're front-end, if you're back-end, if you're Java, if you're Python engineer, whatever um, kind of uh, engineering background you have, 
if you are highly ambitious, if you want to work in a team that is, uh, is strives to build the next generation of robotic automation, of uh, uh, wants to build a kind of a new generation of uh, delivery apps and the delivery uh, tools and delivery uh, models, then uh, that is definitely something for you. We are Amsterdam based, we are hiring for Amsterdam. If you come from another place, uh, just reach out. We uh, definitely are open uh, for discussing also a remote uh, joining. Um, we have currently a team of around 200 engineers. We organized in, uh, uh, a couple of product teams, uh, customer facing, but also supply chain facing and, and platform related tools. Uh, we are looking at beside the classical engineering tools also for security engineers, for people that are looking especially also in uh, privacy topics, test engineer, test automation engineers on really low level PLC testing up to the point of uh, high level uh, integration and to end type of testing. Uh, whatever is your background, have a look. If you, if you like the domain, if you like what you have heard, uh, you will find even more information and more background in the blogs. We love to share with the community. We have built uh, our proposition uh, with a lot of open source and we are now in the space and now in the phase where we are giving back. So we love to also actually help the rest of the industry to automate by making as much as possible of the tools that we develop open source. If you want to be part of the, this movement, just have a look to join.pigna.app. Join us. See you soon. Good. I just want to say thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to us but so in depth so insightful and uh, maybe it's my ignorance but i'm a little bit mind blown um at the moment so thank you so much and i hope everyone enjoys it thanks for having me thanks everybody out there hope to talk to everybody soon good have a wonderful day bye bye, bye. Hey guys, thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.